Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and let's talk about IPA, hops, research and development, and the overall evolution of beer with Sam Tierney. He's the brewing manager of The Propagator, the small brewing project in Los Angeles from Firestone Walker. From how beers go through trials to hop experimentation, we're going to cover it all. We're going to get into the show in just a moment, but first, Jack Hendler of Jack's Abbey is joining me on the line, and the brewery is a sponsor of this episode, and we're thankful for that. And again, we're talking about the brewery's Loggers of the World series, and the fifth version has just been released, and this time the brewery is headed to Iceland. So, Jack, can you tell us a little bit about this collaboration and just what goes into a Yolabach? Absolutely. So this is a really exciting collaboration uh, that we did with an Icelandic brewery, and we're learning all about Iceland and what it takes to brew beer in that country, which is has all kinds of challenges, as you might expect, being a small island nation in the middle of the Atlantic. So access to ingredients, I imagine, being one? Absolutely. Access to ingredients, although the one ingredient that was talked about a lot was their water. And that was a really interesting tidbit that we learned about. They have some fantastic um, volcanic water that they get to use to make their beers. What does that contribute to to the recipes, to the beers? The, the water that they're using comes uh, from volcanic sources. So, uh, I mean, you can get Icelandic water here in the U.S., I believe under Icelandic, the Icelandic brand, um, but it has an interesting mineral content, content but is a, a very soft water. All right. So tell us about Yolabach and what it is we can expect to taste when we open up our cans and pour it into a glass. So when we talked to Einstuck about what they brew and how they brew, one of the interesting things was about their holiday beer. And we were really inspired by this style of beer, this Yola Bach, and Yola is their holiday inspired beer. And we were able to incorporate uh, that sort of flavor characteristic that they're looking for the middle of the winter. And as you can expect, that's a little bit of a stronger beer, a little bit of a darker beer. So this is a deep amber, malty, on the sweeter side, Bach beer. Well, thanks, Jack. You're going to be back with us at the bottom of the show to talk more about this very cool collaboration. But in the meantime, I'm going to encourage everybody to visit jacksabbey.com to learn more about this beer as well as the brewery. I'm excited to have Sam Tierney on the show this week. He's been running Firestone Walker's Propagator in Los Angeles for the six years it's been open and has unique insight on creating small batches that could one day be scaled, experimenting with ingredients, and finding the sweet spot for drinkers. He's a passionate brewer who takes the role seriously and is constantly trying to find ways to improve upon techniques and processes. As the brewery location nears another anniversary, he reflects on how hops have evolved in beer and what it takes to stay fresh, but not lose sight of history and tradition. He spoke to me from California. Here's our conversation. The Propagator has been around for six years now, right? Uh, Yeah, opened uh, spring 2016, and we brewed our first batch in November of 2016. What was that first batch? Uh, the first batch was Wookie Jack. And that was kind of, you know, that was our black rye IPA that uh, we had just discontinued um, the year before. And, you know, we're looking to keep it around in some capacity. And that was a 
a good new recipe to work out on the small brew house because, you know, it's a little forgiving versus saying, you know, we wanted to knock out a Pilsner or something like that, you know, big beer with some dark malt and a lot of dry hop. Um, so we were able to kind of work things out and that first recipe definitely didn't hit all the numbers perfectly, but we learned a lot from it and we're able to pretty quickly dial in the brew house. As you think about the last six years, cause it's interesting that you did a black rye IPA, right? And I, and I miss Wookie Jack. Like it was a, it was a really fun beer to drink and the whole idea of black IPA or Cascadian dark or, you know, whatever a brewery is calling that. Um, a lot of those styles that people enjoyed got knocked out of the water by the hazies, by the New England styles. And it seems like six years ago, that change really started to take hold in earnest, where the very nature of IPA in the US started to change. Um, I don't know if you agree with that or not. That's sort of my uh, where, where I've been sitting, what, I, what I've been seeing. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how you've seen IPA change in the six years that the propagator has been open. I think I do definitely agree with that analysis and essentially that timeline. So the second beer that we brewed here was gen one IPA. And that's a beer that we still make pretty regularly, probably every other month about, um, and it's, you know, we called it a West Side IPA since we're on the West Side of LA. <laughs> and we weren't really sure. It wasn't really in the classic West Coast model at the time. It's unfiltered. So it's a little hazy. Uh, it's brewed with some wheat. And it, you know, it, at the time in 2016, we were starting to really become aware of trends toward, you know, hazier IPAs, juicier IPAs. And that, that was really starting to take off, obviously. You know, I think at that point, um, we'd already had the Alchemist come out. I forget exactly the year they came out for the Invitational. Um, and, you know, and I think, yeah, we had all, you know, obviously had a lot of those beers um, from New England at the time. And we're thinking about, you know, the evolution of West Coast IPA. And so Gen 1 was kind of our first take on that, where it was you know, as modern as we could make it. And, um, you know, a little hazy, definitely had a big, you know, citra mosaic dry hop bitterness was not very in your face. Um, and so, yeah, we still make that beer today. It's, you know, we've tweaked it a little bit. I, I've certainly increased the hop dosage in it over the years. Um, you know, it, it started out pretty modest, like any, you know, normal IPA we would have brewed back then, but, you know, as you know, hopping rates have increased a lot in the subsequent years. So uh, we modernized it a bit, um, but it's really not that different. So it's kind of like a, a halfway, almost like a hybrid style IPA where it's definitely, you know, brewers that make what we now call like, you know, West coast IPA here, which was just IPA, right. um, you know, that they'll look at it and say, Oh, well, it's kind of hazy and it's not very bitter, but, you know, compared to the newer juicier IPAs that have, you know, subsequently come to, to dominate. Um, I mean, not completely dominate here, but, um, you know, they're definitely a huge part of the IPA game. Um, it's definitely not like that either. So yeah, that was definitely our first step in that direction. Um, or at least that year we were, we were trying out a bunch of new stuff like that. Out here on the East coast, I feel like it's harder to find a well-made West coast traditional 
IPA than it was even six years ago, um, uh, just because the marketplace is dictating haze. When, when you're saying that that haze isn't dominating out there, do, do you have like a rough idea of, or in your mind at least, what that split might be? I'm not sure market overall. I do think that, or even anecdotally, um, but yeah, well, yeah, well, sure. Um, I mean, I know from you know looking. You know, we're big enough that we definitely uh, are very aware of, you know, stuff like IRI data. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the the overall larger market here, I think that what we would call West Coast IPAs are still dominating sales, you know, whether it's Lagunitas IPA um, or, you know, I mean, for us, you know, we still have a couple of West Coast IPAs that do pretty well, even though actually um, now our largest selling IPA is Mine Haze, which is... Uh, kind of New England influenced AC IPA. So um, there's definitely that. And I think on a smaller kind of like hype brewery level, as far as what's driving the interest, what's driving the beer geek stuff, it seems like Hazy did overtake West Coast for a bit, but I think things have kind of balanced out and it seems relatively equal to me. And I think that a lot of the hardcore craft drinkers that, you know, are really, committed to, you know, and loyal to a lot of the, um, the established breweries here tend to gravitate a little bit more toward West coast, but, uh, but I think it's fairly even actually, I think we've kind of gotten to that point where it's a good mix. Like it's hard to go to, and I will any brewery here really, um, and not find a West coast IPA, um, which I know is definitely not the case in other regions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but you'll usually find, you know, there, except for a few holdouts, pretty much everyone who really makes IPA a core part of their business, which is almost every brewery um, is doing both essentially. When you think back to year one and finding hopping rates that you felt comfortable with, there, there's something that stuck out in my mind of uh, remembering talking to brewers 20 years ago or you know 25 years ago where uh, they were talking about recipes to German brewers or Belgian brewers and talking about, you know, pounds per barrel or, you know, not necessarily in the way that it is today, um, but how old world brewers were astonished, maybe even a little mortified by the amount of hops that were going into some U.S. beers. Um, and then sort of hearing more established U.S. brewers that are now going into uh, the hazy New England style where however many pounds per barrel you could get in that was a ridiculous number um struck some more established u.s brewers as you know just a little crazy um what when you were thinking about those recipes uh, and trying to get out of that initial comfort zone did, did you all have to psych yourself up for it was it i you know what was going through your mind when you started making these these beers yeah, I definitely think there had to be some sort of mental recalibration. You know, when we first started testing out for Mine Haze, so that would have been um, 2018. And then um, Mine Haze, you know, we did our full market launch uh, in the beginning of 2019. So basically, uh, early kind of spring into summer of 2018, we started brewing hazy IPAs here at the Propagator. And we were just, you know, we kind of, we're trying everything. Um, but we knew just from talking to other brewers that were already doing it that, you know, we were going to have to definitely, um, do a heavier 
hop approach than we were used to, but, you know, at the same time, uh, minimizing bitterness. So most of that's happening in the dry hop and that's, you know, we did go pretty heavy, uh, in the whirlpool initially, and then we've kind of scaled back on that subsequently. Um, but yeah, I think some of our earlier beers, you know, we did some really heavily hopped IPAs, you know, double Jack was always fairly heavily hopped oh, yeah. um, as a classic, you know, West coast double IPA. Uh, but you know, our thinking was, okay, well, you need a really big beer, to handle that, that kind of hop load. And, you know, and you're also going for much higher bitterness in a beer like that. So the overall hop in something like that is comparable to something like mine haze or a lot of the hazy IPAs we brew here. Um, you know, we do a lot of other one-off stuff too. Um, but you know, the way we're using the hops are a little different. So, you know, most of that's going into the dry hop now on the hazy IPAs where double Jack was getting a lot more in the brew house, um, you know, including hop extracts to, to get that bitterness. Um, so yeah, doing lighter beers, you know, we always thought that there was this maximum threshold in which, you know, diminishing returns took over and there was just really no point. And in a West Coast style beer and a clear beer, um, I definitely still believe that, that you do get a point where you're not really getting anything out of it. And, um, you know, things change a little bit with how we approach the hazier beers, um, you know, with the different yeast strain we use and the different grain bill approach we're using you know, you are creating this matrix of compounds in the beer and you are, um, you're carrying more of those compounds into the finished beer. And that's part of what gives you that juiciness, that roundness, that unique flavor profile you get out of those beers that you can't really achieve in a West coast IPA. Um, and because of that, you can increase, um, the hops. And if you're doing it, you know, if you're doing it correctly, you're not going to add too many grassy, you know, um, astringent burn like character, um, you know, so I think in a West coast IPA, yeah, definitely you can get to this over hop period where it's, you're not really getting anything out of it. And then you do start to get more green chlorophyll grassy notes, but in a hazy, um, if you do it right, you can get to a higher level, I think, and still get more out of it and still get, get a return for your, uh, investment there. Can we talk about doing it right? Because, for, for, for those hazy beers, because I, I'm thinking of, and I, I imagine it's a little different at Propagator, but if we're talking about Mind Haze and, and coming out of Paso, um, that's a pretty big system. And when I'm visiting, you know, smaller seven, 10 barrel brew houses and they're saying, okay, well, we're doing, you know, five pounds per barrel. Um, you know, that seems excessive. I mean, it, it, it works uh, for, for them. Um, you guys can't, do that um i imagine for you know going up to 10 pounds per barrel for some of your systems right no I, yeah okay. I, I don't think i i think even <laughs> here at the propagator i've topped out maybe around six which, which some people are going to say oh that, that's that's too low um which is also ridiculous but um so how do you do it right to extract those aromas and flavors without one bankrupting bankrupting your hop budget, um, overwhelming your system or just I don't know, playing into ridiculousness. Yeah, I think it, it you know, hop I feel selection. Like that was, I, I feel like I, that sounds like a loaded question where it probably is, but I didn't mean it that way. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I think it's like, it's optimizing the hop varietal usage with, you know, with our yeast strain and, you know, really getting the flavors we want and then, you know, dry hopping 
I think a lot of it comes down to raw material selection too. You know, if you are really careful about the hops that you're picking and, you know, you have the best quality coming in, um, you're going to get more out of it. You know, you're not going to get things that you don't want um, if you're selecting away from that in the raw material phase. Um, And to me, that's where a lot of, you know, overly hopped beers can go wrong is if you're starting with hops that aren't of the correct quality for the flavor you're looking for, it doesn't matter, you know, adding more hops is actually going to be a detriment because then you're going to start to get more character that you didn't want potentially. Um, so there's that. And then, yeah, I also think on the larger scale, you know, you have some advantages as far as extraction. Uh, I think you tend to get more out of dry hops in larger tanks um, just because you have um, a lot more beer to fall through as hops settle. Um, you know, so you're not going to get, um, you're not going to get hop settling prematurely and, you know, and then you can do things like rousing tanks to, you know, make sure you're fully extracting your hops as well. Um, and that's definitely something that we, um, we've experimented a lot with and, and we do on, uh, most of our dry hop beers. Um, and then, so, yeah, I, I think there's that approach. Um, and then also, you know, having a centrifuge, which a lot of smaller breweries do as well, but, you know, we oh, found yeah. that, having the centrifuge, you know, allows you to clean up the beer. So you're not leaving too much in, you know, and I think, you know, the biggest detriment that I still see, um, in hazy IPAs that are otherwise well-made is just that hop burn that um, too much green astringent character that, you know, that gives you that prickly burning sensation in the finish, um, which, you know, some drinkers gravitate toward a little bit of that. And I think that we've found that, um, you know, we've chosen to fully move away from that and basically fully mitigate that so that our beers are, you know, more drinkable and, um, and tend to, yeah, just have a much rounder, cleaner finish. And I think, yeah. And center fusion is key to that. When can we go back to selection for a second? Cause I, I know not every brewer that's listening uh, has had the chance to do it in the way that that you all do it, and certainly the uh, the non beer makers that are listening might be might be fascinated by this. But um, and let's just whatever hop you want to, to to talk about. We don't have to talk about all of them, but just if there's one uh, sort of in mind um, when you go to selection, how do you approach what you hope to leave with? And is there a good varietal to talk about with that? Yeah, you know, you can go classic and, and think about, you know, looking at something like um, Cascade or Centennial or Chinook, you know, okay. hops that we've used basically since the beginning. And, you know, those have always been grown by a lot of different growers um, in different regions, you know. So, you know, we like to look at, you know, some hops from Oregon, some hops from Washington, and then, you know, increasingly Idaho as well. And, um, you know, just but also you have to be open too, because I think, you know, there definitely is a terroir element that plays into the the character of those hops, but there's also a lot of variation in microclimates, even in the Yakima Valley. And you're going to get, you know, very different lots of a given variety from different farms. And so, you know, depending on uh, the specific weather, the growing conditions of that year, you know, different farms um, come up with, different uh, qualities in their hops and you know and everyone's trying to just grow the best hops you know uh, but that's just kind of the way it works out so we definitely feel like you know there's there's farms that um we select hops from you know year after year but um a lot of times you know we like to just see what um what the companies that we're 
we're working with um, and buying the the hops from, you know, because we do buy some hops direct, but most of the hops we buy are coming from, um, you know, the uh, the brokers that we work with. Um, and yeah, and you know, they'll they kind of know what we're into, and they do a lot of analysis these days. So you know, they're looking yeah. at oil profiles already, and and um, and they kind of steer us toward a, a selection. You know put everything on the table from, you know, the farms that we usually like, and then, you know, you just have to be open to finding the quality you're looking for. And I think that, you know, developing a team over the years, that's now kind of on the same page as far as like, okay, you know, what are we steering away from? You know, what kind of character are we queuing in on with each given variety? You know, what do we want out of that hop and what's that hop going to do for us? And so you kind of have a goal for every variety that you're going to select. Um, you know, and that's best case scenario is you have, you know, different hops, all of high quality that are all a little bit different. And then you can pick the one that kind of perfectly fits your flavor profile. But there's also the reality that um, in any given year, there can be challenges and, um, you know, something like just, you know, heat waves or high winds or fires and smoke. And so you're also looking to make sure that, you're not selecting lots that are going to display off flavors that may come from that. Um, and that's, that's really tricky, but, um, but part of it is just, it's just doing that. And then, you know, and every lot too, as it gets processed in the farm, it gets dried, it gets bailed. Um, you know, there's other opportunities for things to happen that, that kind of steer the character in one way or another. So, you know, um, part of it is also just making sure that you're getting the best quality too. And sometimes there's just like the objectively best lot on the table that was handled the best, grown the best, dried the best. Um, and it just, you know, it gets you everything you want. You're a member of the hop quality group, right? Yes. Uh, which we've talked about on the show before. Um, is there anything that you can talk about, about initiatives that you all are trying to get more brewers or drinkers to be thinking about? Well, yeah. Um, you know, it's over the years. <laughs> I know that was an open-ended question because I'm springing that one on you, but yeah. Um, you know, Firestone Walker was one of the founding breweries for the hop quality group. And, um, you know, over the years, um, the, the group has done a lot of work, um, a lot of outreach to farms and it, you know, it all started as, um, this kind of realization that we needed better relationships and better connections with, um, with the farmers that grow our hops. And it kind of came about after the, um, the Anheuser-Busch sale initially um, to turn into AB InBev. And, you know, they kind of changed some of their program as far as um, how they were um, doing their relationships with the, the raw material suppliers. And, um, Val Peacock, who had worked with them, had retired and um, and they got him on board and he had so much experience, you know, um, visiting farms, you know, all over the world, everyone that was growing hops for AB and um, basically said, hey, you know, if we want to, you know, form better relationships with craft brewers directly and talk about quality and talk about what's important for us, you know, what's the best way to go about that? So they started that up and then we started going and visiting farms every year. And this is something I've been doing since um, probably yeah, about... 2015 and um you know different members uh, get together you know we'll organize a few trips every year and then go visit farms and you know it, at this point everybody kind of knows the the program and it's really about just you know connecting with people and 
and, you know, just letting everyone know that, you know, we really care and, um, you know, we want to see the best quality. And so, you know, basically giving expectations about what we expect as far as um, food safety and cleanliness, that was a big one. You know, it, it's as craft has come to, to dominate the hop industry in some ways. Um, I mean, not completely, obviously the alpha market right. still uh, drives international um, hops, but um, you know, we're using so many hops now and the way we use them is so different. So dry hopping has become dominant and, you know, because we add our hops post-fermentation and we're not boiling them, we have to be very careful about the quality um, and make sure, you know, quality, not just from an aromatic standpoint, but quality from a, a food safety standpoint, making sure that the facilities are clean and that, you know, there's not birds pooping on the hops as they're being dried and it's important, you know, there's not contamination. There's not, you know, cell phones and broken glass in the bales of hops from lights that are shattering things like that. So there's all kinds of things, you know, so there's this kind of big checklist you kind of have to go through and say, okay, here's, here's what we want. And then, um, you know, and thankfully, the farmers over the years have all responded really well and, you know, they've all wanted to step up their game. And I think have realized that, you know, if they can prove to us that they're taking all the extra lengths um, to, you know, give us the quality that we're looking for that uh, we'll pay for it. And, you know, and the price of hops has gone up. Um, so it's, you know, and we know we're, we're asking for more, so we're going to, we're going to have to pay more for it. But, um, but I think that over the years it's, it's, been a really great program and i think as something that started as a small amount of brewers doing it you know we have grown um and expanded membership recently but um but i think the craft world um has really benefited a lot um from that work over the years i can understand light bulbs breaking i'm a little more confused about cell phones getting into hops was this just like party nights that got out of control or you should see, you know, so we would go and, um, and do these farm visits with, um, with different, um, staff members from different companies like, um, you know, hops diner, um, Yakima chief, uh, Haas, um, mostly, and, you know, and they do their own audits too. So they're, you know, they're the main buyers from the farms that are then selling to brewers. So, you know, they have their own, uh, internal quality programs. And so, you know, and, and forming the relationships with them. And so we all kind of made this, a uh, like kind of a partnership and said, Hey, we're not going to try to work around you. We buy the hops from you. So, you know, our relationships are paramount as well. Um, you know, we don't, we never wanted to make any appearances. Like we were trying to go around them and go directly to the farmers. Cause that, um, all those relationships are really important. And, um, and so we all worked together on this and yeah, they would show us pictures, you know, they'd say, Hey, here's, here's the like photo book of all the crazy things we found in bales when they show up to the pellet plants. And it's like, you know, like a rake broken in half, cell phones, hats, all manners of clothing, wedding rings, watches, you know? So it was like people working in the facilities, just dropping things on a conveyor somewhere. And then, you know, it, you know, if you've been into a hot picker while it's running during harvest, it's the most chaotic environment. You know, there's just all of these belts and conveyors going everywhere. The, the picker stripping the hops off the vines. And, and so all it takes is, you know, if somebody checking Facebook on their phone, you know, accidentally drops in a conveyor, it's gone. You're never going to see it again kind of thing. And they do have magnets and, and filters like screens and stuff that try to get that stuff out, but, um, but it doesn't all get taken out. So, you know, part of it, part of us is like asking, Hey, you know, you need to have a designated cell phone area that shouldn't be out, you know, just like we would, you know, on the floor in the brewery saying, Hey, you know, don't be on your phone while you're CIPing a tank. Don't be on your phone while you're, uh, while you're checking the, the conveyor of the dribble belts or something like that. 
Wow. All right. That that's a that's a new one on me. Um, sticking with hops for just one more minute uh, as we're as I start to get back to talking to you about being a brewer. Uh, is there taking out of the equation for a moment, like the uh, the super popular hops of the moment? Is there a hop varietal that exists that you as a brewer feel particularly drawn to? That you feel like if you get the right batch of it, you're just going to make a beer that that sings. Yeah, one of those is actually a more recent variety. I mean, there's a few I think about like that, um, but cashmere is a newer variety that we've really fallen in love with, and I think partly it's just it's it's this unique hop that has this really interesting citrus and berry aromas. Um, you know, I sometimes and you know stone fruit too it's kind of this really you know rubbing the the hop itself to me is more um almost like strawberry like sometimes but also like has this interesting kind of herbaceous spiciness and then in the beer sometimes you get the interesting peach and grapefruit notes too um and that variety you know was um came out of the usda breeding program a few years ago and you know for a couple years it just kind of sat around and we've noticed that with these um these public hop varieties they don't have a marketing department basically you know the usda just releases them you know for um for use by the growers and says okay this is now you know a released variety um anyone can get you know rootstock and you know they have the um the kind of process they go through to get that but it's not like the flashier stuff like citra mosaic um that you know is coming out of the hop breeding company which you know has a marketing department and a lot of money behind it and does a lot of outreach and and also because um, the hop breeding company is a joint project between Yakima Chief and Haas, which are um, you know two of the biggest um, companies that sell hops to brewers. Um, you know they have all their salespeople going out basically and um, and you know pushing these varieties. I mean, for lack of a better term, not that they need to push those <laughs> varieties on anybody, but you know. Um, they're great hops. Absolutely. And we use a lot of them, but, um, but they have certain advantages just because of how that works. But, um, but cashmere, you know, just kind of flew under the radar, um, because it was just kind of quite early released by the USDA. And then, um, you know, as it was adopted by more farmers, they had to kind of figure out how to grow it. And, you know, there were, uh, there was varying quality, I think over the first few years as, you know, people were figuring out when to pick it, when the optimum um, picking window was as far as maturation and the aromas you're getting. And, but after a couple of years of that, I think, you know, we really fell in love the first time we used it. I remember the first pilot single hot beer we brewed here was absolutely amazing. I at first smell thought that it was like a grapefruit beer. Like I was like, I swear you put like grapefruit extract or something in this. And then, um, you know, subsequently it, it became a little more complex and we just, yeah, we really love it. So um, I think just because we've been able to work with a couple farmers on, you know, saying, hey, you know, this is what we're looking for in this hop. And, you know, we want to kind of be on this journey with you of figuring out how to grow this since it's a new hop. And and hopefully as a, a larger user of this hop so far, um, we've been able to kind of steer it in a positive direction as far as the quality of the hop overall. So that's been a fun experience over the last few years. Where does, all right, so getting back to you as a brewer, but also the company at large, where does Propagator fit in to the larger Firestone umbrella? 
So we're always doing new stuff here and, you know, we pretty much, you know, on average are doing like a new beer a week. And I think for, you know, for a pilot facility for larger brewery, that's not outrageous by any means. Um, you know, it seems that's pretty average if maybe a little lower than average. even. Yeah. Um, but, you know, pretty much everything we make here is going to be sold in our tap rooms. So we have three tap rooms and uh, we can do 20 barrel batches here. We have a 10 hectoliter German brew house, Casper uh, Schultz, that, um, you know, somewhat replicates the process of the larger brew houses. It's the scale is, is so different that, um, you know, there's some things that are really hard to scale and that's mostly on the fermentation side, but, you know, basically it's a German style brew house with a, a mash mixer and, um, you know, a separate louder ton. And then, um, you know, we boil with an external calandria. So the influence that the boil has is very similar to the larger brew house style. You know, it's not like we just got a direct fired, you know, single infusion system that is really common in, you know, breweries this size, um, which would have just made different beer than yeah. what we're used to doing. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, partially we are, you know, we're making enough beer to always keep some new interesting beers on in our tap rooms. And then, you know, we're always looking um, over the next couple of years of, of new developments and new things that we want to be working on. So we just kind of start brewing beers in the styles that we're interested in exploring. Um, sometimes, you know, as we get closer to wanting to launch a new beer, we're more specifically honing in on a, a recipe that's going to be the beer that we're going to release. And then, um, you know, brewing test batches here, getting those on tap kind of covertly, you know, and people don't really know what we're up to, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now our new, you know, year round beer we just launched was a beer that, you know, we had on tap here over the last year and no one realized it. Um, so that's, that's a lot of what we're doing, but, um, but also just having fun, you know, we, we want to make interesting beers that we don't ever envision are going to be, um, beers that, you know, might have larger market appeal, but some people appreciate and, um, and we just like to do as brewers. What's a good example of that? Rauk beer. Attaboy. Yeah. No, I was the right thinking- place. I know. Look, look, look at you pandering. I love it. Okay. Uh, is that all right? Let's talk about rock beer then. No, I mean, we, I, I brewed one batch a couple of years ago and, uh, I think it, it got a really good reception among the people that liked it. I think we did a pretty close, you know, something in the style of like a Schlenkel Mertzen. Um, but you know, we weren't able to sell through that whole batch. I think we ended up in a few kicks at the end. Um, there, I mean, there's no way in hell that you guys would ever do a rock that would have national distribution, right? No. Yeah. I think the closest, um, well, it certainly was national distribution, but we've done a couple batches of, um, Imperial Walker's reserve smoke Porter Asian bourbon barrels. And so that's, you know, that's the, the biggest release we've done of a smoked beer, a couple, um, releases of that. All right. Well, what, what's a, a more realistic example of a beer that you all get jazzed about that, you know, might not have larger commercial appeal, but that like tickles you as a brewer. Yeah. Another one that we've consistently done here that it just never, you know, we were never able to like take the next step on is uh, our Schwartz beer. And, you know, that's another one of those brewers beers where, you know, we all love making dark lagers. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been pumping out a couple batches of that a year pretty much since we opened and we always, kind of talk like, Oh, you know, maybe next year of the year, maybe we could uh, put this in cans, do some distro. And, um, 
you know, hasn't happened yet, but never say never, never, you know, we, uh, we still may see a dark lager at some point, maybe not specifically that beer, but maybe some other one. Where's the hesitancy? Is it, is it consumers? Is it, I, I feel like if you all put some juice behind it, maybe it could take off. Is there, yeah. I think how, the, how much is it the tail wagging the dog versus, you know, the right way? Yeah. I, I think there's definitely something to be said for that. Um, that, you know, especially once you get to a certain size, if, if you're willing to put your energy into it, um, you know, you can make some things happen. Um, you know, I think we've just been so focused on um, our other larger brands that something like that, you know, putting in the work for something like that, we haven't quite figured out how to make it work, but I, it's something that we still talk about. And, um, you know, I, I think we tend to move a little slower and, you know, we're, we're being very methodical about these things, I think on a larger scale. So, um, you know, yeah, it's, we're definitely not that brewery that's releasing a ton of seasonals on a distro footprint. You know, we tend to be a little more measured in what we're doing. And, um, so when we do something like that, it has to be kind of well thought out and it's going to take a while. Is there an example of a beer that you guys had on tap at the propagator that did become, you know, the larger beer that you, as you said, you were sort of like stealthily pouring. Is there something that comes to mind that somebody listening to this as they're now walking the shelves can relate to? Well, yeah, a couple, you know, there was um, Welcome to LA, which we launched last year. And that was a beer that we had brewed as a draft only beer here since 2019 um, in kind of several iterations. And that's a hoppy lager, you know, variously called a West Coast Pilsner or uh, an IPL. Um, Cold IPA. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we we kind of settled on just calling it kind of a West Coast lager, hoppy lager. and so that's, yeah, we have that in SoCal Distro now since, you know, it's playing on the LA, you know, name and we're trying to make that kind of a local beer since it, it originated in the LA brewery here. Um, so there's that, but, you know, something like um, uh, Hopnosis, which is our new year round IPA that we just launched. Um, that was something that we were trialing here last year. And I think the last name we used was like HOP number three. And we, I think it was like, uh, hop ontology project, which I was like, I don't know if anybody's going to get that, but, um, it, you know, it's something we got to kick out of in the gun on the R and D side. Um, and yeah, and, you know, that was, uh, an IPA, um, using a lager yeast. And so that's kind of like, as you can see, like with welcome to LA, we were kind of moving in that direction as far as developing hoppier lagers. And we had brewed a few other hoppier lagers before that, where we're trying out, you know, American hops and in, in different forms, not, not just the classic IPL, which is, you know, was at least in the past, mostly, you know, take your West coast IPA and just use lager yeast. Um, you know, we were kind of exploring where, you know, a more kind of traditional lager sensibility and balance maybe intersects with American hop profile. And so that kind of led us, I think that, you know, hopnosis is the, the kind of latest, um, iteration of that. And, and where we kind of finally went with that was, you know, bringing it all the way into an IPA and just saying, well, this beer is an IPA. We're just making it a little bit differently. And, and, um, you know, and most people that are going to buy it don't know and don't care, you know, that the details behind it, but, um, it's just, you know, a, a new West coast IPA really. It, is there regionality to beer drinking still? Like, are there pockets of local 
palette preferences that you see? I think so. Yeah, when I travel around, I definitely notice differences um, in other areas. Uh, you know, and I definitely when I, you know, listen to uh, interviews on, uh, you know, various podcasts, and, you know, including yours, some of the, some of the ones I, I was recently listening to with brewers in other areas of the country talking about what's hot in their market. I see things that, you know, aren't really much of a thing here. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to see how that works and, you know, how, um, beers have different appeals in different areas. Um, you know, certainly, I mean, I, you know, have been made aware that, you know, that West coast IPA is like becoming a trend in other areas now, maybe where it wasn't the areas that, you know, weren't, uh, strong IPA markets before hazy took over. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, moving to different areas. Yeah. You just kind of see, I mean, you know, I was just in Florida in January, uh, for the hop convention and, you know, it's interesting to see the dichotomy there of like, you know, heavily fruited kettle sour and then like, you know, giant ABV, um, adjunct stout, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's like, and those, which, t- is you know, so those bi- which is so bizarre for Miami in that area in Tampa. It's just, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. And those exist here. Um, but not, you know, to the same extent, um, you know, and, it, and then I see like, I, I think because California was very early in the craft game, there, there's this inertia in the market here. And, you know, and so, you know, we still have beers like DBA and Union Jack that like are still kicking after all these years. Um, and they kind of represent, you know, that's kind of old school. Like, you know, you still see that from a lot of breweries here where it's like, okay, I have my kind of old school, like an amber pale ale, uh, you know, more traditional West coast IPA that, you know, isn't the super modern style. And those are like, you know, that's still a thing. So I wonder, you know, whenever I go to other areas that, you know, didn't have, um, you know, Sierra Nevada and Anchor and Lagunitas, you know, in their market forever, um, or, you know, Firestone to some extent, you know, I guess we're getting up there in age too. Um, you know, it, it seems a little bit different. <laughs> I mean, you 25 like, plus, right? Yeah. Yeah. Last year was 25. So going on 26 this year. Um, and so I, I do think that there's more of a traditional, like you have the drinkers, you know, you develop that culture and some of those beers just don't, don't ever go away. Like, I don't know, you know, is like Sierra Nevada pale ale ever not going to be everywhere in California, you know? Um, and I just don't know, you know, I, I don't know what it's like um, necessarily in other areas. I'm, I'm sure it's not as ubiquitous, but I know they still have really wide distro for that, but you know, and then stuff like Lagunese IPA obviously as well, or, you know, stone IPA, um, you know, looking back at, you know, all the breweries that just, you know, they're able to, even though, even if the market evolves around them, all those beers are still there and they still do pretty well here. When you think about inertia, right, there is a, there are some breweries that have been around for a long time, 10 plus years, 15 plus years, whatever. Um, And they have a formula that works. They have a footprint that they're happy with and they can just sort of keep, you know, keep going. Um, and then there are breweries that you know, have consistent, reliable performers, but the brewery is never satisfied and always tinkering, you know, not necessarily looking to replace, um, but making sure that that inertia doesn't fully set in. Um, when you're thinking about 
future beers, when you're thinking about innovation in the beer space, how, how do you start that process? Is it is it just from traveling and, and getting a piece of an idea or tasting something and wondering what you can do with it? Is there something else that you do when you're thinking about the creation of a new recipe or what could potentially be a, a new style? There's just so much inspiration all around, I think. And that's, that's kind of been, you know, where we've, we've moved in the last few years, I think is, is just kind of looking at what people are into that we maybe don't do yet. And then saying, you know, could I do that better? Um, can I make, you know, the best version of that to somebody? Um, and, you know, is that something that I want to do? Um, you know, cause there's definitely, you know, lines that, um, we just haven't crossed yet as far as like, um, new things out there, but things that, you know, that we wouldn't, and I, and I guess that, that sounds kind of pejorative in a way, but like, um, you know, there's always, yeah, we're always looking at a lot of new things and new ideas out there. And, you know, at, at our size, we definitely consider all the options out there, anything that's hot, anything that's burning up the market, we're taking a look at and we're saying, you know, is this something that's viable for us to do? You know, should we get in on this? Um, and so there's, there's kind of that, like that side of us that's keenly aware of the overall market and, uh, and trends, but then there's also the side of just, you know, what kind of classic things are we passionate about and, do we want to just make our spin of that? Um, and, you know, like grounding that kind of in more classic beer styles or, you know, just being inspired by new processes and techniques that brewers are coming up with to make beers that maybe are familiar and flavor profile, but you approach in a slightly different way. Um, and I, you know, I think we, we tend to do a lot of that because that's a little bit of our, our core competency as a brewery has been, um, you know, just, crafting those like perfect balanced beers that um that aren't like too out there too crazy you know we're, we're definitely not known as as like a very crazy brewery but you know in some areas we do experiment more i mean especially when we get into barrels and stuff like that um you know we make some really interesting products i think um especially um coming out of our barrel program and our beer club lately so we're, we definitely have a, a dichotomy where it's like um you know, you're, you're looking at mass market stuff. You're saying, you know, constantly having that conversation, you know, what are we going to do with seltzer or non-alcoholic or, um, different types of, of fruit things. And then, you know, which sorts of different barrel age things are we going to come up with? You know, we have our sour program, we're doing spontaneous beer, you know, we're doing all of these cocktail inspired, um, burn barrel age beers where we're starting to mix elements of clean and sour together. So we have all these parts always flying around, um, and, you know, we have a pretty big team too. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, there's, there's always a lot going on. Um, so it's hard to really say it's, it seems like we get a little bit of everything. What's something that's either on the drawing board or in fermenters or barrels right now that you're excited to put in front of people? <sighs> Ooh, well, you know, I, I guess thinking about, you know, what's, what's coming up right now, you know, from the propagator, um, nothing too crazy, but we just brewed our, um, anniversary double IPA and we collaborated with El Segundo on it. And we just mixed a couple new elements in, um, a couple new hops that I'm really excited about. Um, 
we're using Vista, which is the newest release from the USDA that, um, you know, I really, I know that a few brewers have been playing around with as it's been in development. It was, uh, 074 was the, the USDA number before it, okay. it got released. Um, so that's a really cool. And I, I think it's a really awesome hop. Um, another, you know, very modern IPA profile, something, you know, that wouldn't be out of place, you know, in a, in a lineup of beers with, you know, something like Strata and Citra Mosaic, something like that. It's, it's a very similar type of hop. Um, and then there's a, a new hop from um, Hop Reading Company, um, which is just number 1019, which they were super jazzed up about Harvest um, or at Harvest last year. And um, it's really interesting, like peach ring tropical character. Um, and yeah, so we're throwing a couple of those in there. We're doing some fermentation hopping, but it's like a clean West Coast IPA. It's going to be pretty clear. It's not, you know, going hazy. So I think we continue to... Um, kind of just try to progress the the profile of IPAs and not be, you know, put in a box and say, okay, here's what a hazy IPA is. Here's what a West Coast IPA is. You know, there's this whole spectrum of flavors that you can play around with. And so, you know, we're always looking to tweak that and kind of um, find the next thing there. Um, so, yeah, I, I really, really excited to see um, what's going to, what's going to do, you know, like how that's going to work out for us, I guess, because, you know, you're trying a couple of new things. Um, and then I don't know, classically, you know, we just got a couple loggers in the pipe. We did our first Maybach ever. Um, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm actually pretty excited about that. That was a collaboration with Moonlight Brewing. And um, sure. Yeah. And so uh, we've got that coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, and then, um, yeah, otherwise, I mean, just, you know, looking further out or, yeah, just uh, looking further out. Um, you know, just new, uh, new stuff coming out, you know, in the fruit realm, I think we got really, um, invested in fruit beer last year, um, taking over the Cali squeeze brand and, um, just working on, on new ideas there. And, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of new fun experimentation that we've been doing on a really small batch, even, you know, smaller than propagator, we have, um, like a one barrel, uh, fermentation block that we do a lot of experimentation with up in Paso actually. And, um, and so we've been trying out a lot of different, you know, different fruits, um, different formulations of, of stuff up there. So, um, we'll definitely have some new stuff coming out from that pretty soon. Cool. Um, and that, that was, uh, that's slow brewing, right? SLO. Uh, yeah, that was a brand that slow brew developed and, um, you know, we just really dug everything, basically the branding, the beers and, you know, have a, a great relationship with them. Um, you know, their brewmaster used to work at Firestone, um, you know, um, Adam and David are, are friends with, uh, the owner of slow brew and basically, um, you know, we're basically like, Hey, would you consider selling, uh, selling this brand and these beers to us? You know, we're kind of interested in getting into this realm, but we like, you already made the brand that we want. <laughs> and, and they were like, sure. So we took that over from them. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the main one of that's a blood orange Hefeweizen. Yeah. I've had it. Like seems like kind of a throwback, but, um, but it's actually doing pretty well, um, for us so far. And I think, you know, it's just, it's interesting how sometimes those, those trends can be cyclical, you know, or it's like the world is ready to come back to that. It almost seems like a nineties beer, but you know, it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the technology and the, and the know-how has improved, I imagine. So that it's probably a little bit better than what we might've been tasting in the nineties. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I hope so. Um, I just want one 
quick clarification thing uh, on the Maybach that you brewed with Moonlight. Uh, first for Propagator or first ever for Firestone? Firestone Walker. I don't know of anyone that we've done before that. So I it's think amazing. that's amazing. I mean, yeah. 25 years of almost 26 of, uh, okay. Yeah. I was like, we're not um, <laughs> really in the Bach game. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of like stronger longers that we had brewed and like I couldn't I didn't have a single one going back all the way to batch one of the propagator and I don't know of us ever doing one at the big brewery. Yeah. Okay. All right. On the show, uh, I've been asking uh, folks uh, a, a relatively simple question of uh, with the premise of my wife and I were rewatching The Good Place last summer. And there's this whole thing in the last season of being able to walk through a green door and you can be anywhere at any point in time uh, with anybody that you want to be with. And so if such technology existed on this point of existence and you could walk through a green door as this conversation ended and be in any pub or any brewery anywhere in the world at any point with uh, with, with anybody, where would you go? Who would you want to be with? And what would you want to drink? You know, I'm tempted to say that I would like to go in the, uh, you know, mid sixties to, uh, Fritz Maytag's favorite bar in San Francisco <laughs> where he was drinking anchor steam, when he heard that they were going to go out of business. Um, and cause I want to know, you know, and I want to drink it with him and I want to know what he tasted in that beer that inspired him to get into brewing. And, um, you know, I think that that moment, it was a very important moment for beer in the U S um, you know? And so, yeah, I, I want to know what that beer tasted like. Um, you know, that, or I guess, you know, maybe like pre-earthquake San Francisco back when steam beer was ubiquitous, you know, and, you know, I'd maybe take him back all the way back then with me so we could see what it was like actually in the heyday and not, you know, not that one last surviving example that, you know, was limping on its last leg, that, that somehow he still thought there was something there. Um, even though admittedly I've heard that, you know, at that point they were struggling and the beer wasn't that great. And it was pretty inconsistent, but, um, yeah. but whatever, whatever it was, you know, I, I want to know, I'd like to drink that beer with him. Um, you know, we know, we know the beer that he went on to, uh, to create, you know, after they, they cleaned up the brewery and modernized it and everything like that. And that's what anchor steam is now, but I'd, I'd be fascinated to know what that original, what that beer tasted like before he got his hands on it. That made him want to, to do it. I love that answer. I would, I would, if you would have me, I'd love to sit there with you and, uh, and, and see the same thing. That's a cool piece of history. Sam, thanks for, thanks for being on the show this week. And thanks for sharing your insights and, I feel like you gave me a little bit of hope about uh, of what the future of hops could be in beer, that there's still some life kicking in the West coast and maybe it can, maybe it can be pushed out here to the, to the East. Oh, I, I'm sure it will. I, <laughs> I, I have a lot of hope for hops. So um, yeah, it's definitely something, you know, that we're deeply invested in and um, and I don't, I don't think, wherever that's ever not going to be, you know, one of our, our main areas of uh, passion and exploration. What's a hop that you've seen popping up in beers that you're excited about and digging the flavors and aromas? 
let me know about it. You can email me. It's John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com, or you can get with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. A reminder to check out beeredge.com for our This Week in Rauk Beer and Defend Pilsner merch, and to follow along on social media at The Beer Edge. And of course, This Week in Rauk Beer is also online. The Facebook group is easy to search, and on Twitter and Instagram, it's at TWRaukBeer. We're able to bring you this show each week, thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you'd like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to a sponsor at beeredge.com. As promised, Jack Hendler is back with us. Jack Sabby is a sponsor of this episode, and I hope you'll give them a closer look. We're talking about the Loggers of the World Series and Destination Iceland, which is now available. Jack, you're five into this series, and these collaborations have really focused on tradition. Over the last year or so, what have you been learning about loggers and regionality? as this project has continued on? It's been a great experience talking with lager brewers from across the world. While each lager brewer is using very similar techniques and styles to create their beers, they're all really incorporating unique aspects from where they are located, uh, ingredients that are grown near them, or inspirations that may be unique to their, to their region. So it's really interesting to see how one style has evolved into many different interpretations, and we've really learned a lot through this process. What can you tell us about Destination Iceland? This is a really cool partnership because we're learning about a, a, a country that, while they pull a lot of inspiration from Europe, really had to create their own interpretations, being slightly isolated historically. And while this Bach beer is very reminiscent of maybe a German style Bach beer. There are some really unique characteristics, particularly how they're utilizing water from their country, this Icelandic water, and understanding how that affects the finished beer was really interesting. Awesome. Well, Destination Iceland is available now. Thank you, Jack. And a reminder to everybody listening to go and check out jacksabbey.com to learn more about this beer, as well as all of the other lagers that the brewery has on offer. And again, thanks to the brewery for being a sponsor. A reminder to check out the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Still, this beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. As for the show, Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back to drink beer and to think beer.